leading us in prayer and reading God's word for us. Do be in prayer for Jane. Um, she is quite unwell and in hospital. She's at uh, the Jurovinsky, and uh, she certainly needs our prayers. She's in good hands. Uh, doctors have been working hard and doing good work with her. Um, so please continue to be in pray- prayer for her. Um, <clears throat> someone texting me? Nope, sorry. Uh, we are looking at the Sermon on the Mount together. Obviously, uh, we're not going to look at the whole thing in one shot. We're going to be making our way through it piece by piece. And what we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus talks like he does everywhere in Scripture. In fact, in in the, the Gospels, he talks a lot about this thing called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at that last week. What is this kingdom of God? What is this kingdom of heaven? You know, it's interesting. Jesus, nowhere in the Gospels, anywhere in the Gospels, in fact, nowhere does Jesus say, um, receive me as your personal Lord and Savior. That's language that if you're a kind of an evangelical Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, if you grew up in an evangelical church, you'd be familiar with that language, right? You need, to, you need to accept or receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. But that's not language that Jesus uses. The language Jesus uses is, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's the language Jesus uses. He talks about this kingdom and he encourages people to enter into this kingdom. We talked about the kingdom last time. What is his kingdom? Well, it's his, it's his administration. You know, if a, a, a new owner comes along in your company, you work for a company and someone comes in and buys that company and so now there's a new owner, uh, what they're going to do is they're going to put their stamp on that company, right? They're going to uh, have their values, have their priorities, have their goals, and have their strategies be the thing that governs the way that this company operates. And, And the same is true, in a sense, when we talk about the kingdom of God. Jesus says, if you are a Christian... You, are, you have entered into a, a new kingdom and a new, with a new administration. And, and what I tried to emphasize last week is that, that everything about this kingdom of God, if you come out of the, the, the way the world operates, the administration of your culture, and you enter into this kingdom of God where, where His administration rules and you're living according to His will, it's going to be vastly different than what you knew prior when you were in the kingdom of the world. He turns everything upside down. That's why the, 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 the title of this sermon is Entering the Upside Down. It's a little bit of a, of a nod to Stranger Things, anybody who's into that. Now, this upside down is way better than the one in Stranger Things, okay? I know not every, not every analogy works perfectly, okay? So, the idea, though, is, is that everything is different, Jesus upends absolutely everything, and we're going to be exploring how he upends absolutely everything through our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And it starts, however, with the Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes are are different from the rest of the whole Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes are not so much about what how you're supposed to behave, what life is like in terms of how you're supposed to live in the kingdom of God. No, they're about who is 
in the kingdom of God. They're not so much about how you're supposed to live, but, it, but about who you are as a being. What is a kingdom citizen? What, is they, what does a kingdom citizen look like? In verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Now, here's the scene. Jesus, he goes to this, uh, this hill, okay? It's a little bit like we have here. You know, you say you live on Hamilton Mountain or you live down the mountain or whatever, and anybody who's not from around here goes, what mountain are you talking about? We point to the escarpment, and we say that mountain, and they go, have you ever been to BC? Do you even know what a mountain is? This is a little bit like that. Jesus goes up on a hill, and his disciples come with him. Now, his disciples are, his, are, are the first group of believers, the first people to enter into the kingdom of God. Yes, there are crowds there, and the crowds are overhearing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus is not speaking particularly to the crowds. He's speaking to his disciples. He's saying, you are in my kingdom, and because you are in my kingdom, there's a certain way that you live. There's a certain look that you have. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Here's the point. When we look at these beatitudes, okay, there's eight of them, we're only looking at four of them this morning, but when you look at these beatitudes, these are not different categories of people. It's not like you have the poor in spirit over here, and you have the mourners over there, and you have the merciful over there, and you have the peacemakers back there. No, no, no. It's not different categories of people. In fact, it is a profile of a believer. All of these beatitudes are characteristic of someone who is a member of the kingdom of God, someone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who is a believer, someone who is a Christian. I hope you know what I mean because I tried to give you every definition of it that I can. And every Christian, every believer is blessed in a myriad of ways that every believer Uh, receives the kingdom of heaven. Every believer is comforted. Every believer will inherit the earth. Every believer will see God. Every believer uh, will, what does the peacemaker one say? I forgot. Every believer will be called children of God. So these are all blessings that every Christian experiences, okay? And now we're going to study these characteristics together probably take us a couple weeks to do it, for today, for next week. But before we start, we just have to deal with that word blessed for a second. What does it mean to be blessed? Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, etc., etc. What does that mean? Sometimes we say it means happy. And, and it does have a connotation of happiness, but it's much, much more than just happiness. In the Bible, to be blessed means essentially, as John Stott put it, to be approved of. To be approved of. To be accepted. Uh, Yes, it means to, to be happy and joyful, but that happiness and that joy actually comes from being accepted and approved. So, in the Old Testament, you know, it says, bless my, bless the Lord, O my soul. So, human beings 
Christians, we can bless God. What we're doing when we bless God, we're, we're saying that He is, we're eulogizing God. We're saying that He is praiseworthy, that He is deserving of our admiration and our approval. And when, when God says, blessed are those who, etc. in the Old Testament, He's approving of us. And there is no higher blessing, there is no higher approval that someone can enjoy than the approval and the blessings of God. There's a, a place in Lord of the Rings where Sam uh, is speaking to Gandalf, or sorry, sorry, Faramir, and he's telling Faramir, you know, you've done a good thing here, and I'm really impressed by it. And, and Faramir says, well, that, that is high praise indeed, because the praises of the praiseworthy are above all rewards. The praises of the praiseworthy are above all rewards. In other words, when someone who is awesome says, you're awesome, that means a lot more to you than when someone who isn't so special and so awesome says to you, I think you're awesome. The praises of the praiseworthy are above all rewards. And and who is the most praiseworthy being in existence? It's God himself. And to have his approval, to have his statement, you are awesome on your life, that is the highest achievement, so to speak, of a human being. But here's the irony. Jesus says, okay, that if you want the approval of God, you get it through the Beatitudes. You get it through displaying, through being the Beatitudes. And this is ironic because utter, essentially what Jesus is saying is that the highest achievement of the human race comes to you through no achievement at all. God's approval comes to you not through your achievement, not through your work, but actually through laying down your achievements, laying down your work, laying down your record. We said last week, you see, Jesus, being a Christian, is not adding Jesus to your life as though you sort of top him up, you top up your life like he's a garnish. No, 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 Jesus has come into this world to reconstruct us, he has come to deconstruct our lives and then rebuild it after his image, that's what he's come to do, to reconstruct it. In other words, he's come to empty us in order to fill us. Our problem is, is that too often we go to Jesus and we're too full. We want to bring him our abilities, we want to bring him our achievements, we want to bring him our devotion, we want to bring him our moral record, we want to bring him all of this and say, see, I deserve your approval. And Jesus is saying to us in the Beatitudes, he's saying, you got to get rid of all of that. That's not the way you enter the kingdom of God. Everything works differently in my kingdom. If you are a Christian, you've been empty, emptied by Christ and filled by Christ. And you say, that sounds weird. What does that mean? Well, let's look at these Beatitudes together and hopefully it'll make a little more sense. The first one that Jesus mentions is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Old Testament, the poor always referred to the weak people, the helpless people, the dispossessed people, the people who lacked resources to save themselves. These are people who are desperately needy. These are people who understand that that they, they cannot achieve anything themselves because they don't have the resources to achieve anything themselves. They do not have what it takes, so to speak. So 
So to be poor in spirit, as Jesus describes it here, means to be a person who says, you know, I have huge, huge, huge problems. I have massive problems, and I simply cannot overcome those problems myself because I do not have the, the resources. I understand that my problems are, are, are beyond my ability to manage. I am powerless to overcome these things. And it's to understand that these problems are ultimately spiritual at root because some of us, you know, we say, well, I have psychological problems, you know, I have mental health problems, and that that's, could be true, but, but Jesus is saying your, your psychological problems aren't just psychological. Sometimes we say that our problems are social. You know, we're, we're in social systems that are unfair and unjust, or perhaps we've in family systems in our, in our family that, that we've been messed up by our relationships in them, and, and those are our problems. And that may be true, but Jesus is saying that's not ultimately your problem or only your problem. Some people have philosophical problems. They say, I don't understand the meaning of life, or I don't understand whether there is an existence, uh, if God really exists in this life. And that may be true. You may have philosophical problems, but Jesus is saying your problems aren't just philosophical. It's not just money that's your problem. Some of us think my problem is financial. If I could change my financial situation, my life would be a lot better and a lot different. And, and maybe that's true. Maybe it would improve. But that's not what your problem is fundamentally. Your problem fundamentally, Jesus says, is spiritual. Your problem, you understand when you're poor in spirit, your problem is that, that it is beyond what any philosopher, what any psychologist, what any sociologist, any kind of therapist of any kind could do. To be spiritually poor is to be at the end of your rope. It's to come to the end of yourself and say, I realize that I am powerless to overcome my greatest problems. I don't have the resources for it. Now, this, this is a problem because, you see, your natural tendency is the opposite. You are like the five-year-old kid who's learning to tie their shoelaces. Do people still tie shoelaces? Now, do kids do that, or is it all Velcro and dials and stuff? Some kids must learn how to tie their shoelaces, and what, is ha what happens? You, you try to teach them to tie their shoelaces, and then you sit them down, and you say, okay, let's do this together, and they're like, I can do it myself. And that's the problem that, that sits at the root of every human heart. We want to say, I can do it myself. But the first characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they realize that they cannot. They are powerless over their problems. Okay, that's the, the first step in empty, emptying. Well, well, what's the problem that they're powerless over? Well, that's the second step in emptying. Jesus says, interestingly enough, he says, blessed are those who mourn. So the first thing is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The second thing is, blessed are those who mourn. Again, remember, not a different category of people. This is the same person. If you are poor in spirit, that means that you will mourn. That's what Jesus is saying here. Well, what's wrong with the world? What is it? What is wrong with this world? If everybody loved Jesus, wouldn't we have a better world? Yeah. So what's wrong with the world? Is it ignorance? Is it just ignorance of Jesus? Or ignorance of how we should live? Some people think it's just ignorance. Hmm? 
Rebellion. Yeah, don't, don't go so quick to the answer, okay? Like this. <laughs> Some people say what's wrong with the world is class struggle. Right? The rich are oppressing the poor. Some people will say it's, it's racial injustice. Some people will say, well, it's, it's the breakdown of the family. That's, that's what's wrong with the world. Some people will say, no, no, no. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's social media and the terrible low self-esteem that many of you people between the ages of 12 and 25 are experiencing as a result of being too involved in social media. Some people say, no, 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 it's moral breakdown. Well, they often have their own definition of what it is. You know what the problem with the world is? At bottom, it's us. We're the problem with the world. What our problem is, 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 is our hearts are in rebellion, as the good brother said, to the creator who made us, and we are curved in on ourselves and desire to live life according to our own rules. You see, G.K. Chesterton, this is the, the legend. The legend is, is that one of the great papers in Britain, I think it was the London Times, back in the 1920s or so, asked a bunch of men of letters and women of letters, people, philosophers and really smart people, academics, to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? And they would respond with their letters about what is wrong, and they'd wax eloquent about the, the struggle that, or the system, systemic problems that exist in society, etc. And G.K. Chesterton was asked to submit an answer, and he submitted the answer. It was two words long, I am. We don't want to admit that. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. You see, these are, these are those who realize that they're the problem and that the problem is huge. They mourn over their sin. They, they realize that, that they're in rebellion against God. They name it. They see that it have offended God, their creator, their redeemer, in their, in their actions, the things they do, in their thoughts, the way they think, in their attitude, even in their feelings. And they confess that and they admit that openly and honestly. This is another step in the emptying. Because you see, repentance, true repentance, friends, is letting go of your sin. It sounds scary. You read a, in, the, in the C.S. Lewis's great book, the book called The Great Divorce. If you re haven't read it, you should get it. It's a story about how a group of people who actually live in hell are taken on a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven to see what heaven is like, and they're actually given a chance to leave hell and go to heaven. It's not theologically sound, but it's still really interesting. Um, and what you discover is each and every one of those people who has the opportunity, spoiler alert, they don't take it. And you know why they don't take it? Because they've got a sin in their life that they refuse to give up. All they have to do is give up their sin. All they have to do is mourn over it. All they have to do is repent. And there is something in their life that they cannot give up. There is something in their life that they think, without this thing, I can't be joyful. I can't be happy. Without this thing, I'll, I'll never be satisfied. Without this thing, I'll never be fulfilled. And they can't give it up, and they won't. They, they look at heaven, and it is glorious. They see these beautiful people, and the land is, is, is absolutely awe-inspiring, and they will not turn. 
They won't renounce it. They won't run from it. That's what repentance is, you see. It's interesting, in the book of Job, Job does something quite fascinating. If you, if you don't read it carefully, you can miss it. His kids, it seems, liked to party. And so Job would sacrifice on their behalf and seek not just, to, not just repent for his own sin, but repent for, for the sins of his family. See, when you mourn in the kingdom of God, you're not just repenting of your own sin, you're repenting of the sin that you see around you. You're repenting of the sin that you see in your culture. You realize that everything is in rebellion to God. Not just you personally and individually, but the whole stinking system is set up in rebellion to God. But here's the thing. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. Here's, we think that if we're honest about our sin, we think deep down in our souls that if we're honest about our sin, we will actually loathe ourselves more, we will actually repulse other people, we will actually make God disappointed in us, and so we carry it around, and we feel the guilt of it, and we, we, we feel the shame of it, and there's nothing we can do about it, and we think that if we, we spill it, then we'll be, we'll be covered in self-loathing, and here we see that, that Jesus is actually saying the opposite happens. When you let the light of God's justice shine on your sin and you openly admit it and you say, I know this is something that's wrong with me, but I put it in front of the cross of Jesus Christ. I give it up. You don't have to carry that burden anymore. Because you see, repentance is looking outside of yourself. It's going to the cross. And at the cross, you see the seriousness of your sin because you see that Jesus had to die in order to pay those sins off. Your sins are no small matter, my friends. They're no tiny thing. They are death. Paul says the wages of sin is death. I know that we in our culture do not want to think about sin and don't want to be told that we're sinners. And, and sometimes I get really nervous about telling you guys you're sinners. Well, do I? I don't know. But here's the thing, it's not, you will be comforted if you will be honest. You will be comforted because when you look at the cross, you don't just see what it took for Jesus to, to pay the penalty for your sin. You also see that he was willing to pay the penalty for your sin. You see that he didn't look at you and say, stupid sinner, forget them, I want nothing to do with them. Instead, there he hangs with his arms wide open, wide open. Yes, they're nailed to that cross, but it was love that held him to that cross because he was looking at you and your sin and saying, I want fellowship with them more than I want to avoid the judgment of God on, on sin. I will take that so that I can have them. I don't know of any other place to find true comfort for a guilty conscience in this world. You can find ways to manage it. Of course, the easiest one is to pop a pill or hit next episode or bury yourself in your work or how about this, come to church every week and serve and share, give coffee and uh, go to Grace Kids with, with, as, a, as a teacher and come on Thursdays for Boys Club and Girls Club and use all those things to silence the voice in your head that's telling you, wicked sinner, wicked sinner, wicked sinner. 
The only way you can get rid of that is to go to Jesus and see him on the cross dying for you, mourning. That's what mourning is, so that you can be comforted. You can be comforted. The poor in spirit are those who know they're powerless to deal with their problems. Those who mourn are those who see that Jesus is not powerless. And they go to him. And they have that burden removed from their heart. And therefore they become meek. Jesus says the meek Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does it mean to be weak? Does it mean to be kind of wimpy and docile? No, in the Bible, meekness is basically humility. Scholars say that the Greek word here, I'm not going to get too technical, but I will say that scholars say that the word here Jesus uses for meekness is a word that describes a total lack of pride to the point, okay, of Lack of self-concern. Essentially what humility is in the Bible is this wonderful, wonderful self-forgetfulness. Where you, you don't take yourself too seriously. When you're poor in spirit, when you mourn over your sin, you are looking outside of yourself, you see. You're not so inwardly focused that you're constantly looking at, at, at your, your performance and, and what other people think of you based on your performance. You're not thinking about yourself at all. Because you're overawed at, at him and what he has done for you. And so you, you kind of get lost. You see, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't sit there and look at the Grand Canyon and go, hmm, you know, I'm, I'm very smiling. What about me? What does this say about me going to the Grand Canyon? No, you stare at the Grand Canyon and you just stagger at how huge it is. You just, you just, your jaw drops. I've never been there, eh? But I've been told so many times it's amazing. Your jaw drops at this thing. And you are lost in its vastness. And you kind of forget yourself. Well, when you go to the cross of Jesus Christ, when you are poor in spirit, you know you have no resources to overcome your problems, and you are mourning over the fact that, that you have rebelled against your creator, but you go to the cross, what happens is, is you see the glory of it, you see the majesty of it, it becomes so big in your life that all those things that you're, you've been wondering about and worrying about, they become so stinking small. Because you're looking outside of yourself. And so when something good happens in your life, you say to yourself, you know, I, I don't deserve this. What I deserve is God's judgment, but this good thing happened to me, and so I'll be thankful for it, and I won't put a, too much stock in it because it could be gone tomorrow. And when something bad happens in your life, you, you don't say to yourself or to others, why me? In fact, you say, why not me? Why do I deserve not to have this illness? Why do I deserve not to have this family problem? Why do I deserve not to have these financial issues in my life? Why, why me? No, why not me? 
I'm already not getting what I deserve because what I deserve is God's judgment and him turning his back on me, but God loves me, and therefore I can believe that whatever bad thing that's happening to me right now, he will not let it go without using it for my good and his glory. The meek will inherit the earth, not the proud, not the go-getter, not the the self-promoting Instagram star. Now, these three things, poor in spirit, mourning, meekness, they're the, they're the emptying beatitudes. They show us how utterly needy we are, okay? And so it's interesting that Jesus, in the fourth one, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Not, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness, for they will be filled. But blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You know, it's a a law. It's a law of the universe that if you make being happy your goal in life, you will never be happy. Happiness is a byproduct, okay, of something more valuable and more important C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis Sunday, I guess. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven, or no, what did he say? Let me do this right. Oh, yeah. Aim at heaven and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. You see, happiness is a byproduct of the more valuable thing that is righteousness. We long for righteousness. If you are a kingdom purpose what, person, what you long for is you long for righteousness. If you make anything the center of your life other than God, that thing will ultimately destroy you or you will destroy it. I don't know how many families have been destroyed by parents who, who longed more than anything else for their kids to be well-raised children. It was important that their kids be good. It was important that their kids be successful. And they poured into their kids all their energy and all their strength and all their their resources into raising good kids. And, And in doing so, they turned their kids into neurotic little achievement junkies or rebels with a cause. Because they could feel it. They felt the pressure. They realized that they weren't just being loved for the sake of, because that they are their, their parents' child, that they were being loved based upon what kind of child they were. They could feel it. Kingdom people realize that there is a righteousness they need that is not their own, and they, they hunger for that thing. You only hunger and thirst for things you don't have, Right? That's all you hunger for. And kingdom people hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, the righteousness that comes from God, that is his approval. Jesus at his baptism, he comes up out of the water and the clouds part and a voice from heaven is heard and it's the the voice of the Father. It is God saying, this is my son whom I love. 
With him I am well pleased. This is what you're longing for. This is what you receive when you give up your achievement, when you take all the, 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 the abilities that you have and you say, those things don't mean a lick to my heavenly Father. And you lay them down. And you stand before your Savior and you say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, you, you can't live without, when you're hungry, have you ever been really, really, really hungry? Really, really, really thirsty? What happens? You become like utterly fixated and obsessed with it, right? You can't, this is something you can't live without and you can't stop thinking about it. You know you will die without getting it. I mean, probably most of us have never been to the point where we actually were going to die, but we're like, we're like Esau, you know? Esau, when he comes in from the fields and he smells the stew that Jacob was cooking and uh, he's like, oh, I'm famished, I'm going to die, give me something to eat. That's more how we are. But you have this burning longing to have it satisfied when you're super hungry, when you're super thirsty. And someone, a kingdom citizen is a person who longs to be like Jesus to have his righteousness. And you see, you get it. Because he who was rich became poor for your sake. You can be comforted because he was inconsolable on that cross. You can be filled because when he died, he cried out, I thirst. He's the Sermon on the Mount. Is that you? Is that who you are? Are you that kind of person? You wonder, oh, how do I know? Well, ask yourself, what do you want? What do you really want? Like, really want. We all want stuff, right? We all want things. It'd be nice to have this. It'd be nice to have that. But what do you want in your heart of hearts? What is your deepest, deepest desire? Is it to look like Jesus? Is it to have his gentleness when people are reviling you and giving you a hard time? Is it to have his boldness when people are, are speaking ill against uh, the Heavenly Father and, and, and you want to stand up for Jesus but you're afraid to? Is it, is it to be like him? To have his character sort of pour out of you? You will be satisfied. If that is your longing, if that is your deepest desire, you will be satisfied. It, it's another truism, I guess, or, or universal law that you become like what you worship, okay? Psalm 115 tells you that. You will be filled. One day, you will perfectly mirror the character of Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, but it can start right here. It can start right here, and it can start right now. And that's how the kingdom grows, okay? Okay? The kingdom grows when people like you and me in this little church in Dundas take seriously that urge in our heart to be like the Savior who lived for us and died for us. And it starts to pour out of us into the community of Dundas and into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, and eventually to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beatitudes. Thank you for showing us what a kingdom citizen looks like.
and in many ways, sometimes we feel so far from that, Father. Work in us to, to see that our problems are beyond our power to, to deal with and to address because our problem is sin. But help us to see that, that, that in Jesus, we have the one who had the power to overcome. And in him, we can become righteous for you have blessed us with your spirit. Use us, we pray, O Lord, for the glory of your name in this world. And thank you for the forgiveness of sins that we need not walk around carrying the burden of guilt and shame. We can hold our heads up high and face the world that says, you hypocrite, and we say, yes, we know we are, but we're forgiven hypocrites. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, we have a couple of minutes as the kids who are in sermon breakout, grade 5 and grade 6, I believe, as they make their way to their breakout with their leader, the rest of us have a, an opportunity now to maybe answer a question or two. And I've got one here that says, as a Christian, it asks, as a Christian, can you lose your salvation if you decide not to repent for your sins, believing that as a child of God, all my sins are forgiven anyways? That's, that's very interesting. So, a person believes that they are a child of God, and therefore their sins are forgiven, but then they decide not to repent of their sins. So I'm not sure, I'm, I may not, as a Christian, can you lose your salvation if you decide not to repent for your sin, believing that as a child of God, all my sins are forgiven anyways? Uh, okay, I, I don't know if I'm going to hit your question properly, but I'm going to try. It is impossible to be a child of God without repentance. So when, we're about to go to the table, and when we go to the table, I always give a warning about this, because what the Bible teaches is that if you have sin in your life that you refuse to repent of, that you say, I want to keep this thing in my life, then you are putting, you are putting into question, boy, I'm having a lousy talking day. I apologize for this. I get this every now and then where I, I just, I'm not very articulate and I can't explain myself well. Today is one of those days. You are, you are, you are putting into question your status as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because by definition, a Christian is someone who repents of their sin. By definition, a Christian is someone who hates their sin and wants to turn their back on it. Now, every one of us is going to remain a sinner all the days of our lives on this earth, meaning we're going to commit sins, we're going to fail, we're not going to be perfect like our Savior. That is something that we only get at the last day. 
However, a real Christian is someone who says two things. One, I repent of the things that I shouldn't have done that I did or said or felt or thought. And I repent of the things that I didn't do that I should have done. Those two things. So sins of omission and sins of commission. And you know how you know you're really repenting well of these things? is when you even repent of the, the, the bad motivations of the good things you do. When you do something good and you say, Wow, you know, I feel pretty good about that. I'm a pretty good guy. Hey, God. You even repent of that. But you can't have things in your life that you say, God has told me this is a sin. So I'm clear, this is a sin. Let's say, I'll pick something really obvious, okay? Uh, Let's say pornography. You're a man who says, I know God says viewing pornography is sinful. It's unclean. It's impure. I'm using people as objects to satisfy my own lust, and that is wrong. I know God says that. But I don't care. Because... I know that I'm sorry for being, you know, angry when I get mad. I try really hard to tell the truth when asked questions, and I'm not a person who lies. I'm, I'm an honest businessman and stuff. And so I should be allowed to have this little porn addiction on the side because, you know, I'm doing really well in all these other places. You're not understanding the gospel at all. I'm not going to tell you you're not a Christian. God alone knows a human heart. But I can tell you you don't understand the gospel. Remember, Jesus wants all of you. He is not satisfied with part of you. He tells you to die to yourself. You can't die to only most of yourself or die only to part of yourself. You can only die to yourself, all of yourself. So, that's that one. Does knowing the reward of confessing sin affect the trueness of confessing it? Like, confessing sin is just to be comforted. Um, <laughs> this is good. You, this person is just like Martin Luther. Martin Luther was always so afraid of the, you know, sinful motivations behind everything. Like, all he did was spend time in confession. Oh, forgive me, Lord, because I'm, I, I lied today. Oh, Lord, forgive me because I'm sitting here hoping that I will get comfort from getting you to forgive me for lying today. And you can just drive yourself into like a, like a, a complete uh, and utter spiral, okay? Actually, Martin Luther's confessor told him you would confess a fart if you needed to, Martin. You don't want to be that kind of person. What I will say is this, it's, what, what's the comfort you're looking for? When you mourn over your sin and you confess your sin, what's the comfort you're looking for? I would guess that the comfort you're looking for is relief of your guilt and hopefully Also, relief of your shame over having disappointed your Heavenly Father. Well, that's true confession. Because you can't just ask for comfort generally. You need comfort from something. 
And so I wouldn't worry too much, my dear Martin, about whether your, your, your repentance is uh, authentic or not. Just repent of it and leave it before God. One more. What does it mean that the meek will inherit the earth? Uh, most scholars, I didn't talk about this, you're right, um, but basically scholars believe that Jesus is saying that in the new creation, when he, Jesus returns and he restores this earth to what it was meant to be before we messed it up with sin, that the meek are the ones who will spend eternity with Christ in this new creation. So you will inherit this life. It's a way of saying that you will experience life in the presence of Christ for eternity in this world. 